The church which I previously served as pastor had an average age that was substantially higher than First Baptist Nixa. Uh, Consequently, I preached far more funerals in my five years there, 31, than I have during my five years here, four. But the first funeral that I preached at First Baptist Buffalo was not that of an elderly man or woman, but was for an eight-year-old boy who drowned in his backyard swimming pool. He was an honorary kid, and he spent more than one Sunday school hour in my office because he couldn't behave and he couldn't even sit still, but, but I liked him. He, he was sweet. He, he reminded me of a puppy that really wants to please you, but in the moment just can't resist chewing on your couch and digging in your trash. That was Jeremy. On a hot July afternoon, Jeremy snuck out of his house away from his mother's watchful gaze, which was totally understandable because it was impossible to keep your eye on him all the time. Jeremy was constant motion. And he was playing on the deck of their above-ground pool, which had the pool cover over it. And Jeremy fell in, and he got tangled up in the cover, and he couldn't get out. I was on vacation when I got the call, and I can't remember who it was that that called me, but they, they didn't have all of the details. All they knew was that there had been an accident, that it was bad, that it involved a pool, and that Jeremy was on his way to Cox South Emergency Room. I immediately fell to my knees and begged God to spare Jeremy's life. It was not long after that that I got another call informing me that Jeremy was dead. In fact, he had been dead when the paramedics arrived at his house, but because he was a minor, they could not pronounce him until he arrived at the hospital. I was absolutely devastated by this news. I found myself in that moment seized with uncontrollable sobbing. It was the first tragedy that I had ever experienced as a pastor, and I was a thousand miles away. All I could do was call Jeremy's mom, but what did he say? I knew upon my return that I would be faced with two heart-wrenching questions. Why did this happen, and what happens to an eight-year-old boy who dies? I think what what hit me the hardest and what caused that torrent of emotions was the sheer reality, the sheer finality of it all. This This was not a textbook. This was not a hypothetical scenario tossed out for discussion in a pastoral ministries class. This was real life and this was real death and this was a real grieving mother who would never again hold her son and this was a real eight-year-old boy who had suddenly stepped into eternity. This was where the theology that I had constructed in my seminary years would would be tested to its very limit. Could I give answers to those questions And were those answers truthful, and would they satisfy? 
Every one of us has to grapple with these questions at some point when tragedy strikes us and the unnaturalness of death slaps us in the face. It is possible, perhaps, to conceive of death in naturalistic terms so long as it is only the aged and the elderly who die. At times like that, cliches like death is just a part of life and it was just his time do tend to make a certain degree of sense, circle of life and all that. But such naturalistic conceptions will not suffice when the deceased is an eight-year-old in a pool or an infant in a crib or a teenager in a car wreck or a 35-year-old mom in a cancer ward. Such deaths demand answers. Why do people die? What accounts for this horrid yet universal reign of death over the human race? And is there any hope in the midst of it? The universality of death demands that everyone honestly face this question and seek a morally and emotionally satisfying yet truthful answer. Because many people have answers that they find emotionally satisfying, but if those answers do not accord with the truth, then that satisfaction is cheap and short-lived. Today, I'm going to offer you a reason for the universal reign of death that I believe to be both truthful and morally and emotionally satisfying. I'm going to tell you how death came to reign over the human race, why it continues to reign over the human race, and how the reign of death is ultimately defeated. Romans 5, 12-21 is a crucial passage, not only for our understanding of Romans, but for our understanding of the gospel. And it's crucial not only for our understanding of the gospel, but for our understanding of human existence and of God's dealings with mankind. These ten verses represent the entire structure of the way that Paul viewed the world. Paul was absolutely convinced that God deals with humanity in terms of two covenants. A covenant with all humanity in Adam, and a covenant with a new and redeemed humanity in Christ, who is the second and the last Adam. And Paul was convinced that this covenantal theology explains both the universal reign of sin in death and the conquest of that reign by an even greater reign of grace through righteousness leading to eternal life in Jesus Christ. So this Holy Week, we're going to give our attention to these ten verses. We're going to look at the reign of death this Palm Sunday morning. We're going to look at the reign of the righteous on Good Friday evening. And we'll conclude by looking at the reign of grace on Easter Sunday morning. And my hope and my prayer is that you will join us for all three services. And that God would meet you in this passage in order to deliver you from death's cruel and tyrannical reign into the joyful reign of grace and righteousness and life in Christ. This morning we're going to focus upon verses 12 through 14 and the reign of death. 
In this section, Paul explains the origin of death's reign over the human race, and he hints at the redemptive plan which this cataclysmic fall foreshadows. So let's look together at verses 12 to 14. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So where did death come from and all of the misery and all of the suffering and all of the grief that attends it? We know that it wasn't always this way. We know that intuitively. We know that we were made for something more than just to live a few short years and then to die. We were made for glory. And everything within us shouts out in testimony to that truth. We were made for eternity. Unlike the irrational animals, humanity possesses the attributes of personality, morality, rationality, immortality. Therefore, when we are confronted with death, we find it deeply disconsonant with what we know to be true. It jars us to the very depths of our souls. It shouldn't be this way. That's why nearly every individual on the face of the planet, regardless of their religious convictions, all but the fiercest and most committed materialists, conceives of some form of an afterlife. They just cannot wrap their minds and their hearts around the notion of human existence coming to an end. The whole concept of death just seems wrong. And it is. When we turn to the opening chapters of Genesis, we find a humanity created for a deathless existence. An existence full of life and joy and innocence and splendor and glory. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. What God saw was perfection, paradise, Eden. But all we have to do is venture over to chapter 4, and we find something radically different. We find Cain standing over the bloodied corpse of his brother Abel. And suddenly, Adam and Eve experience something that they've never known before, the death of a child. He's there one day, tending the flocks out on the hills, and the next, his parents are digging a grave in which to lay his lifeless body. Chapter 5 confronts us again with the harsh reality of death as the genealogical records roll forth 
And all the days of Adam were 930 years, and he died. And all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. And all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. And it goes on and on like that. And he died, and he died, and he died. John Piper writes that history is just one long conveyor belt of corpses. So where did it all come from, and where does it all end? That's the subject that Paul takes up in these three verses. In verse 12, he makes four propositions which we need to unpack. Number one, sin entered the world through one man. Number two, death entered the world through that one man's sin. Number three, death spread to all humanity. Number four, because all humanity sinned. And that last proposition that all humanity sinned is so startling that Paul actually leaves off in mid-sentence in order to explain it. Notice that Paul begins verse 12 with just as, but then he doesn't complete the thought. What we expect to come is a even so. Because that's what happens in verses 18 through 21. Just as, even so, just as. It's a comparison, but there's nothing that Paul gives on the other end to compare with what he says in verse 12. So evidently what Paul said there, because all sinned, is so astonishing a claim that it needs to, he needs to break off in mid-sentence in order to explain it. He's not actually going to resume his thought until verse 18, where he basically just starts the sentence over again. So this morning, we need to walk through these four propositions, especially the last one, in order to make sure we understand what Paul is saying. First, Paul says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. This is, of course, a reference to the sin of Adam in the garden which was so much more than the eating of a forbidden fruit. As if God were some grumpy old man who shakes his fist at the neighbor kids and yells at them to stay off his lawn and get away from his tomato plants. It was not just any tree that God forbid Adam to eat. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was a real tree fraught with symbolic significance. And by forbidding Adam to eat of it, God was was telling him, Adam, I want you to trust me to tell you what is good and evil. Trust me to be your standard of truth, your source of life, your spring of joy. Trust me to be your God. But Adam did not trust God. When tempted by Satan, Adam desired to be like God knowing good and evil. In other words, eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was a declaration of Adam's independence from God. And men and women have been existing independently of God ever since, attempting to be their own ruler, attempting to be their own sovereign, their own God, their own arbiter of right and wrong, deciding for themselves what it is that will satisfy and make them happy. You can hear the echoes of Adam's sin every time someone says, I know that's what the Bible says, but I just think God would want me to be happy. In other words, I know better than God does what will bring me joy and fulfillment. 
Sometimes this radical independence comes out in in just full-throated blasphemy. As in W.E. Henley's famous poem, Invictus, which translates, Unconquered. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate nor charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That expresses the essence of Adam's sin. The one man through whom sin entered the world. And it characterizes the heart of unregenerate men still today who are still trying to be the masters of their fate and the captains of their soul. Second, Paul says that death entered the world through sin. When God forbid Adam to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he attached to that prohibition a threat. And the Lord God commanded man, saying, You may surely eat of the tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. But Adam didn't die when he ate of the tree. Not at first. Rather, God cursed him, saying, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And then God cast Adam and his wife from the garden, and they lived out the remainder of their days away from the presence of the Lord east of Eden. So what did God mean when he said, in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die? Well, clearly he's speaking of something deeper than physical death. Physical death is but a visible representation, a sacrament, if you will, of spiritual death. In the day, in the very moment When Adam sinned, his entire being, body, and soul became subject to death. His mind darkened, his heart hardened, his body weakened. Now instead of delighting to run to God and enjoying the presence of his glory, now he hid from God like a cockroach from the light. All of the misery and the wretchedness of mankind, all of the evil which mars the pages of human history, all of the bodily sufferings which afflict us, all of it finds its origin in the corruption which now infected Adam's body and Adam's soul. Adam and Eve and all of their descendants were cast from God's presence. A corrupt people living with corrupt hearts and corrupt bodies, living out their days in a corrupt creation, awaiting the inevitable culmination of all of this corruption, namely death and judgment. Third, Paul says, so death spread to all men. There it is. There is the origin of the universality of death. Now, Paul hasn't yet explained how it is 
that one man's sin brought death to the entire race. That's going to be supplied by the next phrase. For now, I just want you to sit for a moment before the awful conclusion that Paul here asserts. Death spread like a contagion through all humanity. Every death, every aborted baby in the womb, every infant sleeping in the crib, every child with leukemia, every soldier cut down in the field of battle, every tribeswoman brutalized by an African warlord, every family drowned in a capsized boat, every man who dies of a heart attack, every woman who falls to the stroke, every victim of Alzheimer's, every human being dies whether violently or naturally, whether young or old, and every death finds its origin in the sin of Adam. So what is the connection between Adam's sin in the garden and Jeremy's death in a backyard swimming pool? This brings us to the fourth phrase. Paul adds that death spread to all men and all women and all children because all sinned. Now the all in the first half of that phrase must be identical to the all in the second half of that phrase. In other words, the all who die must be the same as the all who sinned. So Paul here explains the universality of death on the basis of the universality of of sin. But what does that mean? Well, that little phrase at the end of verse 12 has engendered no small debate throughout church history. In fact, it was the basis of a major theological kerfuffle which erupted in the 5th century between Augustine and Pelagius, a debate which is still raging in the church. There are, as I see it, three possible interpretations of this phrase, because all sinned. First, it could mean that all die because all are guilty of actual transgressions. That is, Paul could be saying that all of us stand before God as individuals, therefore we all receive the penalty of death just like Adam because we all individually transgress God's commands just like Adam. That could be what he means. That was Pelagius' view, who insisted that everyone was possessed of an entirely free will and stood before God entirely on their own merits. However, I'm going to argue that that can't be what Paul means by because all sinned. Let me give you four reasons. First, it's simply not true. It's not true that all actually and voluntarily sin. Infants, for instance, do not transgress the law of God. And yet they die. Lots of them. In verses 13 and 14, Paul says that many died between Adam and Moses, even though they did not sin in the likeness of Adam, meaning that they did not transgress an express command of God, and yet they all died. All of them. Third, the context 
of this passage makes that view impossible because Paul will no less than five times in verses 15 to 19 affirm that condemnation and death reigns over the human race because of the sin of one man. Look down at verse 15 with me. For if many died through one man's trespass, verse 16, for the judgment following one trespass, verse 17, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through the one man, verse 18, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners." In other words, it's not just in verse 12, but throughout the entire passage, Paul links condemnation, judgment, and death experienced by all humanity to the sin of one man, namely Adam. But the fourth reason we need to reject this interpretation is because such an interpretation that a man stands or falls on the basis of his own merits, his own obedience or righteousness, violates the entire doctrine of Romans, not to mention the entire gospel. Thus, the idea that all men die because all men are actually willful transgressors before God must be rejected. That's not what Paul means. So there's a second possibility. It could mean that because of Adam's sin, all humanity inherits a sinful corruption which, given the right circumstances, will certainly issue forth in actual transgressions. And on that basis, on the basis of our sinful nature and our potential sins, we receive the penalty of death. In other words, we are condemned to death because of our inherent depravity, our sinful nature. I would say that this view is closer to the truth, but still must be rejected on at least two grounds. First, the same argument from verses 15 to 19 holds true here as well. Paul does not link the universal experience of death to a universal sin nature. He does not say, because of the sin nature of all, death reigns over all. But rather, because of one man's trespass, all die. So the one sin of Adam brought death to every man. And the second reason is that, again, such an interpretation would be inconsistent with the doctrine of Romans, and it would violate the gospel. We are not justified on the grounds that we are inherently righteous. Therefore, we cannot be condemned on the grounds that we are inherently depraved. Put the opposite way, if we are condemned and suffer death on the grounds that we are inherently sinful, then it must be also true that we are justified and receive eternal life on the grounds that we are inherently holy. That's the Catholic view, but it is not the Protestant view, and it is not the biblical view. So if Paul does not mean that all die because all actually sin, and if he doesn't mean that all die because all are actually sinful, then what does he mean? 
he must mean that we all die because we all sinned in Adam. That is, we are accounted guilty because of Adam's transgression. Adam sinned, we all die. Now, is it true that all of us are sinful by nature? Absolutely. And is it true that we all actually transgress the command of God by an act of our wills? Certainly. Assuming that we possess the mental capacity to understand God's commands, unlike, for instance, infants and the mentally disabled. But that is not the basis on which we are sentenced to death. That is not the basis on which death and with it all of the sin and all of the misery and all of the suffering that infects the human race, that is not the basis on which death has spread to all men. Rather, death has spread to all men because of one man's sin and we are accounted guilty because of that sin. How? Because Adam is the covenant head of the human race. His sin is our sin. His guilt is our guilt. His death is our death. Now, that is a radical statement. It doesn't sit well with our ruggedly individualistic American culture. Our culture is Pelagian. Paul was Augustinian. And this didn't sit well in Paul's day. And that's why he stops in mid-sentence in order to define and defend this statement. So look with me at verse 13. For sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So Paul's defense goes something like this. He concedes that sin existed prior to the law being given to Moses. Okay, that, that point is not in question. That point is not difficult to prove. One need only look at the first few chapters of Genesis in order to find horrid examples of pre-Mosaic sin. Cain murdering Abel in Genesis 4. The sin of Noah's generation destroyed in the flood in Genesis 6. The Tower of Babel, Genesis 11. The people of Sodom, Genesis 19. Nevertheless, Paul says, until there is some law to transgress, there is no punishment executed. Apart from the presence of law, there can be no lawbreakers. Which is very similar to the point that Paul made in Romans 4.15 when he said that the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Nevertheless, he says, they all died between Adam and Moses. Death still reigned. Therefore... The universal reign of death cannot be owing to everyone's individual transgressions of the law. It must be owing to Adam's transgression of God's law and humanity's inclusion in Adam's guilt. But there's an objection coming, and I think Paul sees it coming. The objection would go something like this. But Paul, 
you yourself said that all people, even those without the law, know something of God's law because God has written it on their conscience. Romans 2, 14 and 15. So you haven't absolutely proven your point. Couldn't it still be, Paul, that individuals die for the transgression of the law which is written on their hearts just as Adam died for his transgression of the law given in the garden and Israel died for their transgression of the law given at Sinai? You see the problem? So does Paul. And that's why he adds the next phrase. Even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. In other words, even if it be admitted, say, that the adults in the days of Noah died for their individual transgressions of God's moral law written on their hearts... What about their children who were likewise swept away in the flood? Did they die for their transgression of God's law written on their hearts, which they were too young to discern? Or even if it be admitted that the adults in Sodom died for their individual transgressions of God's law written on their conscience, what about their children? Did they perish in the fire and brimstone because they too had violated God's law written on their hearts which they were too young to discern? To broaden the scope, what about every infant who died in childbirth? What about every mentally disabled adult incapable of understanding God's law and therefore incapable incapable of moral responsibility? Why do they still die? If death is the result of individual transgression, then the severely mentally handicapped ought to live forever. But they don't. Death reigns over them just as it reigns over everyone else. The only conclusion then is that death reigns over the entire human race because the entire human race sinned in Adam. That is, the entire human race is accounted guilty, judged, and punished because of Adam's sin. Now, this may not be the most emotionally satisfying answer to the question that I posed at the beginning, not yet at least, but it's the only answer that can account for the universal reign of death. And if that were where the story ended, it would be dreadfully unsatisfying. In fact, it would be horrifying. Basically, the story of the Bible would be, Adam, the federal head of the human race, failed, and now we are all of us damned, and there's not a thing we can do about it. The end. But something has been done, and Paul hints at it in verse 14. At the very end. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. 
That is what Jesus was doing on Palm Sunday. 2,000 years ago when he marched into Jerusalem. He was coming to be the reality of which Adam was the type. He was coming to be the substance of which Adam was the shadow. He was coming to reverse the devastation wrought by Adam's sin. He was coming to overthrow the reign of sin and death and to establish the reign of grace and life. He was coming to conquer death by death and to overthrow its reign by rising to life again. When people object to the doctrine which Paul teaches in Romans 12 to 14, namely the imputation of Adam's guilt to all of mankind, when they say, that's not fair for God to treat me as if I were guilty for Adam's disobedience, then they must also admit that it is not fair for God to treat me as if I were righteous on account of Christ's obedience. The covenantal nature of humanity and of God's dealings with humanity renders me condemned because of Adam's sin in the very same way that I may be justified because of Christ's righteousness. Now, we're going to have a lot more to say about that in the next two services throughout the course of this week on Good Friday evening and Easter Sunday morning about this covenantal relationship between all humanity in Christ and a new, or all humanity in Adam and a new humanity in Christ. For this morning, though, if you get nothing else out of today's sermon, I want you to get this. You were born into this world already guilty. You were born into this world under condemnation because of the sin of Adam, who stood at the dawn of the ages as the head of the human race. Because of this, you live your life under the sentence of death, both physical and spiritual. Yet there is good news. There is a gospel. There is a second Adam who was not like the first. He did not seek independence from God. He joyfully submitted to the Father's will in all things. He loved God with all of his heart and all of his soul and all of his mind and all of his strength. And he thus achieved a righteousness that neither Adam nor any of his descendants could ever attain. And he did so not for himself, but on behalf of a redeemed humanity. At the climax of the ages, the second Adam obeyed God's command, fulfilled the Father's will, endured the death of a cross where he offered himself as an atoning sacrifice for sinners. And by the very same covenantal decree which condemned all mankind in Adam, a new mankind is declared righteous in Christ. 
And the wonder of grace is that by faith and faith alone, you may be transferred out of the first covenant, the covenant of law and sin and death, and into the second covenant, the covenant of grace and righteousness and life. You may be transferred out of Adam's condemned race and into Christ's justified race. You may be transferred out of the curse of sin and death and into the blessing of righteousness and life. This is the hope in a world that is, for the time being, ruled by death. And it is the only hope. So I invite you this morning, you who live under the reign of death, to come to Jesus, the true and better Adam. To come to him who has done all things well. Come for grace and righteousness and life. Come and live.